Last week, we surveyed the events of Acts chapters 13 to 14, and we learned about the first missionary journey of Paul, Barnabas. We learned how they established various churches in the Roman province of Galatia. We followed them to the island of Cyprus, to the Galatian city of Perga. We joined them in their adventurous and dangerous confrontations with occultic magicians like Elymas, and then with people who thought they were i.e. Paul and Barnabas were incarnate Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. We saw how they established churches in Galatia, but also how right after they left, Judaizers from Israel came in teaching the false doctrine that you must earn salvation by works of righteousness. And, and so these Judaizers not only infected the Galatian churches, but they went back to Paul's home church at Antioch, uh, they were active there. Then they went back to Jerusalem and accused Paul and Barnabas of rejecting the Jewish faith and practice altogether. And so our passage today tells us what happened when Paul and Barnabas were summoned to Jerusalem to give answer to these accusations. So let's take a look at Acts 15. We're going to read together the first five verses this morning. So please stand as we read God's holy word, Acts 15, 1 through 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, com the conversion of the Gentiles and, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words and we hear them ring in our heads and ears and minds, it is necessary. May we be reminded of the truth and the simplicity of the gospel. What is necessary is that we recognize our sin and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so we pray... In that vein this morning, asking that you would help us to understand your word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we can't appreciate fully perhaps how strange, even wrong it would have seemed to those who had grown up under Judaism to be told that circumcision was no longer necessary. It'd be like us being told today that baptism was no longer necessary, and we would have to have a very strong biblical reason for that. And you can see in verse 5 how the ones that were saying that circumcision was still required for salvation were converted Pharisees. And you're probably thinking, I thought we were done with the Pharisees after the gospel accounts. But no, actually, if you remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And there were many... Pharisees who became godly converts to Christianity and joined the church. But as you can imagine, one thing they struggled with was getting rid of the belief that their righteous living 
in observance of the Old Testament ceremonial law earned them favor with God. So undoubtedly, Paul and Barnabas are frustrated. They'd heard the reports of what the Judaizers did in Galatia, in the churches that they had established. That's why Paul writes the letter of Galatians to them. Then both men had to deal with the Judaizers face-to-face in Antioch, where they had been establishing a thriving ministry there for over a decade. And one thing we learned last week is how subtle and dangerous that false doctrine of works righteousness was and still is today. Acts 15 and the parallel account in Galatians 2 tell us that Paul and Barnabas accepted the summons. They accepted the invitation to go up and answer the accusers at Jerusalem. They went with a positive spirit. But they were cautious. And I'm reminded that we are to continue to rejoice in all things, even when the atmosphere seems oppressive or we're concerned about the future. Verse 3 tells us that being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, and they described in detail what had been happening in their work. There was much to be thankful for, much to praise God for, and it brought great joy, it says, to all the brothers. How could the church not be happy, right, to hear about the conversion of the Gentiles? And then we see again that when they came to Jerusalem, in these next verses, they were welcomed by the church. They declared all that God had done with them. But there were some that opposed them and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And you, you, you can imagine that moment of that deep sigh, right? Here we go. You've been in similar situations probably before. Meetings that you've attended where you, were, you knew in advance there was going to be something controversial brought up. Perhaps even a, a meeting where you were going to be called to account for something. And so there's that small talk that goes on for a while, right? But you know there's that lingering issue. It's, it's simmering. It's, somebody's just waiting for the opportunity to bring it up. And, and finally, one of them did. It was one of the converted Pharisees. And fortunately for Paul, the question was not addressed to him directly. He was there. He heard it. But the question was addressed to the apostles and the elders. What are you going to do about that? Is really what they were saying. And verses 6 through 11 read, The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. That's why they had come together. And after there had been much debate. So, friends, this isn't, like I said, this is a subtle, this is a dangerous doctrine. came in in the first century within a few decades, challenged the church. Much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why? 
Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I like that point by Peter. We have, we have not been able to bear this yoke. Isn't that what Jesus had said? Why do you want to continue to bear the yoke that weighs you down? It's, it's much like Pilgrim, the Pilgrim's Progress, right? The, the weight of his sin, the need to please God impossibly by his own efforts, weighing him down until it finally falls off as he sees the shadow of the cross. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples and neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is a cornerstone. This is a watershed moment. It was already obviously implicit and explicit in the teachings of Jesus, but how easy it is for the church to pervert the teachings of God. And we see what happened in verse 12. All the assembly fell silent. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul. They were ready to hear again what had happened. How God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And they probably were relating the stories that we went over last week. From Acts 13 and 14, you should have been there with Elymas. You should have heard Paul when he said, called him the devil, and he, he was blinded. And you should have seen what happened as we went through that wilderness and the bandits and all of the things. It, it, was, it was crazy. It was, like I said last week, it was the Wild West, right? But God was there the entire time, and he blessed and after they had finished, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, had re has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore my judgment is, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Peter, James. Many of you children have studied events like the Constitutional Convention of early American history, and you've heard names like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, and you've likely heard of the various debates that took place at the convention, and if you've taken time to read some of the accounts, Miracle at Philadelphia and some of those types of books, you know how they, they create the context of, of what a difficult time this moment was. Would the states agree? Would they solve the problem of the confederation? And the dramatic moments when Benjamin Franklin or George Washington would stand up and people would listen. And, and you know this is one of the most important moments in American history, let's say. Well, how often have you read Acts 15 with the same kind of thought? This is one of the most important moments in church history, this moment. 
the direction of the Christian church, the commitment to justification by faith versus justification by works, hung in the balance even more critically and crucially than when Martin Luther went before the Catholic Church in the 16th century. By that time, the Catholic Church had just kind of fallen off, right? We, we knew what was going to happen, and, and that was definitely a critical, crucial moment to restore the church. But this is, this is at the moment that the church has even gotten going. And it's not unlike Martin Luther being called to account and being asked to recant his views or to explain himself. And unfortunately, like I say, the leaders in his time did not respond like a James and a Peter respond here. And, and as I try to imagine these events, I imagine that Paul and Barnabas feel this tremendous weight, that's this burden that they carried all the way from Antioch, lifted off of their shoulders. These two people who are the pillars there at the Jerusalem Council, Peter and James, have supported what has been going on, supported the gospel. But then we read in verse 20, but, and those, that word, I don't know what it sounded, I don't know if there was a pause, but any time, you know, we used to teach in our family, when you hear the word but, it negates everything that came before it. You ever talk to your children about that? Don't use but in a sentence like that after you've just, like, don't apologize and confess and then say, but, because usually that follows up with a justification or an excuse, right? So, here we have James, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. So, Perhaps you're saying, wait a second, isn't that just replacing one regulation with another? In Galatians 5.3, Paul writes that every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if, if you say that you have to be circumcised to be saved, then don't stop at circumcision. You'll have to obey every single regulation and commandment perfectly. So how is this any different? If James is saying, you're not restricted by anything except by not eating meat sacrificed to idols, is that the same type of thing? Because this restriction that he's bringing up is taken directly from Leviticus 19.26. Is this hypocrisy? Don't have to be circumcised, but you have to not eat certain kinds of meat? Look at what Paul writes in Galatians 5. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And that word freedom is a wonderful word. We usually say that a person is freed from something. Freedom to the American colonists meant freedom from the tyranny of England. Freedom to the Puritans meant freedom to worship God without persecution or government control. 
And given what we looked at last week with Paul and what he writes in the early chapters of Galatians, we would have to say that for Paul, freedom is being released from the impossible task of trying to fulfill the law as the basis of our righteousness. So for Paul, freedom is being released from the impossible task of trying to fulfill the law by our own righteousness. And notice I did not say that we are freed from God's holy standards or freed from living righteously. We are freed from having to rely upon works to save us. Jesus died in our place. He atoned for our sin. And the Father graciously and mercifully credited the Son's works of righteousness to us. Friends, listen. We are not freed from being expected to walk in the Spirit. We're not freed from being expected to live obedient, thankful lives. And that's why Paul reminds the Galatians in his letter, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In Romans, Paul says something similar. He says, you'll say to me then, shall I sin even more that God's grace may abound? That may seem odd, sound odd. Maybe when you've read that, you've been wondering, why does he come up with that question? But Paul is really saying that some people, just, some people might conceivably say, you know, God is glorified when he forgives me. Right? The more forgiving he is, the more he shows himself glorious. Well, what if I sin even more? Then God would have to forgive me more, which would mean that he would be even more gracious, which means he would be even more glorified. That sounds wrong, right? And that's why Paul says, may that never be, which translated today in in Steve's version would be, give me a break, right? That's foolish talking. And, And he brings this up for an important point. As he says in Galatians 5.13, we have been freed not to sin more, but to serve more. The most direct result of freedom is not that we are suddenly free to do anything that we want, but that we are free to be servants. True freedom of Christ is not that you are free to do whatever you want, but that you are free to serve others. Jesus once said, you'll serve one of two masters. You'll either serve the world or God. He doesn't say or do whatever you want. Freedom in Christ does not mean autonomy. It doesn't mean making your own decisions. It doesn't mean doing your own thing and being your own boss. It means that you are freed from your old master. You're freed from the world, your flesh, the devil, so that you can become bondservants of God and then serve one another. And what Paul is doing in Galatians 5, 13 is contrasting these two lifestyles. One lifestyle is characterized by indulging the the sinful nature, the flesh. When you indulge something, you feed it, right? If I'm indulging my appetite and I'm at Chick-fil-A, I'm not just having one chicken sandwich 
with no pickles and pepper jack cheese. No, I'm going wherever my appetite leads me. And that's usually to two chicken sandwiches and a large waffle fry. But indulgence is bondage to the world. It focuses on my desires and my wants and my needs and often results in missed airplane trips twice. Stories to that. As you can see in verse 15, it leads to biting and devouring one another. But the other lifestyle is one of joyful service of others. Paul says that the entire law is summed up in one command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so just as Jesus loved you and laid down his life for you, so are you expected to lay down your life for others. So there's that one lifestyle that is slavery to your appetite, slavery to the flesh and the world, death under the law, and there's another lifestyle that is freedom to serve one another in Christ. Hang with me for a moment because there is a point to all of this as it connects with Acts 15. Those who are slaves to the world and their flesh typically have the goal of getting others to give them what they want. They may manipulate, they may threaten, sometimes they complain, sometimes they reward, but they do all that they can so that other people will deliver to them what their flesh craves. Adoration, pleasure, service, even material things like money. Many of you parents experience this every day. For example, if you think about the older child who opens the refrigerator and says, there's nothing to eat. Why would he or she save that when the refrigerator is full of food? It's because a particular thing that they want is not in the refrigerator, right? They don't look in there and say, wow, thank you, Lord, for providing us with a bounty of things to eat that's in this refrigerator. That would be nice. But a self-centered child goes to his or her mom and says, how come when you go to the grocery store you never buy anything that I like? And what you're seeing is selfishness. You're seeing discontentment, right? And that is, if this is how we approach our relationships, if this is our defining lifestyle, that all it does as we get older gets more refined and more subtle, then we're still a slave to the flesh, But salvation by the grace of God results in a freedom from that kind of slavery to the world. It frees us from relationships that are marked by manipulation. And as Paul says in that verse, biting and devouring of of one another. And here's perhaps a scarier conclusion if you're thinking through it. Maybe you've already drawn, if you are a safe child to God you should not still be seeing the rotten kind of fruit in your relationships that I'm describing. You should not still be seeing manipulation and complaining and discontentment and bitterness, etc., in your relationships, whether it's your marriage or your parent-child relationships or your friend relationships. Instead, Christian freedom results directly in changed marriages, in changed families, in changed relationships, And so you have these two paths, these two lifestyles. One leads, Paul says, to destruction. 
Note in verse 15 there of that passage that Paul doesn't say that biting and devouring leads to a destruction of the relationship. It doesn't say that, does it? He says it leads to your destruction. Biting and devouring are evidence of a bondage to the flesh, still enslaved to those old masters, the rotten fruits of an unchanged life. Where does this other path lead? It leads the one that has the service of others as a, as a primary principle. It leads to joy. Which one do you want? Do you want bitterness and discontentment or do you want joy? And friends, let me say this. God has providentially placed you in relationships, in marriages, and in families, in work relationships, and more to experience true joy by learning to walk in this harder lifestyle and serve one another. I hope you think of your marriage that way, that God saved you by grace, that he freed you from being a slave to your flesh so that you could experience joy now by serving your spouse. But that's sadly not the goal for many marriages. Instead, our own worldly pleasure and happiness is to go. When a husband gets married because he thinks he will stop being lonely and, and be married to a beautiful woman who will serve him and raise his children, what does he typically get? He gets marital unhappiness because it doesn't work that way. Two sinners don't enter into a marriage with an agreement of what marital happiness is supposed to look like, except for the basic principle that it's whatever the other one wants. That's happiness for them. And when they make their fleshly satisfaction their ultimate purpose, usually they're in cross-purposes with one another because he wants what he wants, she wants what she wants, and they always end up with conflict but God intends to give you something dramatically better than a marital happiness defined by the world or stress-free parenting. God wants you to go through those difficult relationships, those frustrations in mutual service because through that process, he is doing something wonderful in you. He is conforming you to the image of his son. He's teaching you what it means to live in freedom. Can you believe that? Can you believe that serving your spouse, placing the edification of your children, the glory of your employer before yourself is actually freeing and an expression of freedom? Maybe you say, why can't freedom in Christ be easier? Why does it have to be so accompanied with discouragement where you constantly ask, you know, I feel like I'm doing this right, but are we ever going to get it right? Well, here's why it's so difficult. Because true righteousness only begins when you come to the end of yourself. And that's where God is trying to drive you. Dave said, talked earlier about Tim Keller's prayer, being freed from that idolatry. God wants to free you from your idols and from the death grip of the world and from relying upon your own righteousness, he wants to free you to become a citizen of a better kingdom that is marked by peace and love and joy through service, kindness, gentleness, patience, and the fruit of the Spirit. And like I said, there's a point to all of this. Because we've finally gotten to a point, I think, where we can understand James' saying in Acts 15. 
He's saying, Paul, I want you to tell the Gentile believers that they ought to voluntarily restrict their freedom. Because they love those who have grown up under a system in which it would be a very difficult obstacle to overcome to watch them eat meat that still had blood in it that had been sacrificed to idols. See, in most Gentile cities, sacrificial animals offered at the temples and a token portion was burned to the local deity. A larger portion was given to the priests and the temple attendants and the remainder was sold at a discount at the temple markets. Only the best animals were accepted for sacrifices. So, yeah, this was, this was high quality. This was Angus Wagyu beef, right? Pennies on the dollar. And a lot of the Gentile believers saying, it doesn't matter where the rest of the animal went. We don't, we don't believe in Zeus. We don't believe in Diana or Aphrodite or whoever is the local deity. We do believe in good food. But for others, knowing that idols were simply man-made objects of wood and stone, yes, that was a great deal of food, but for those who had grown up under Moses and the regulations of the Old Testament, no. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. What kind of knowledge is he talking about? He's talking about the knowledge of the Gentile believer goes and says, this is just meat. It's the understanding that it's not what goes into a man, things like food that condemn him. It's the understanding that we've been freed from all the various ceremonies that were intended in the law to separate Jew from Gentile. That's a great kind of knowledge, but that kind of knowledge, says Paul, can easily lead to a puffed up ego can easily lead to pride. We think that we don't have to worry about offending others, and so Paul says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, we know that an idol has no real existence. You guys are right. Congratulations. There is no God but one. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. And Paul's not catering to false beliefs. James is not catering to false beliefs in Acts 15. When a brother or sister struggles with an unbiblical perspective, we should lovingly guide them to a better understanding. Okay, it's not saying, look, some of you guys have knowledge, keep it a secret. He's not saying that. But what do we do until the time that there is agreement and understanding? We work hard and we make wise decisions on where we should not offend our brothers and sisters. And that's why he writes further in, in these verses here, but take care that this right of yours, this freedom, does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone who sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged not, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? 
you understand what he's saying there? He's saying if he sees you who knows better and you know that's meat, that's just meat, but he thinks it's meat sacrificed to idols, but he sees you eating it and then he eats it, will he not in his mind actually be eating meat that was sacrificed to idols? And by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed because he thinks that's a sin. And by watching you, he follows your behavior into something that he believes is a sin against God. And thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you actually sin against Christ. So you've not only led them to do something that to them was sin, but you also have offended the Lord in that process. And so his conclusion is, look, until that point in time, that my brother's understanding changes. He's not saying forever, right? Nobody said that. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Because there's a higher standard. There's a higher standard than my freedom to do this, and that is my freedom to serve. My freedom to love. Because ultimately my pleasure with good food is not as important as my brother's edification. Does that make sense? And that's essentially what James is saying in in Acts 15. He's wise enough, James is, to realize there are some subjects that fall into the strong weak category. He's also wise enough to Go ahead and, and, and send a letter out that, that says, restrict yourselves from these practices. And he's going to trust that church leaders like Paul and Barnabas are going to help clarify like Paul does in the book of Galatians, a letter to the Galatians. Because this is not meant to add works for salvation. This is meant to illuminate a Christian principle. And we've already seen Paul does the same exact thing in 1 Corinthians and Romans and Galatians. So really, Paul agrees with James. We just had to understand what James was saying. So we've been given a great freedom, friends, a freedom to restrict our liberty for the benefit of others, for their edification. We must use that freedom to powerfully influence. I, I want you to go beyond just saying, I'm going to restrict myself. I want you to ask, how can I best use my freedom to influence and inspire others to holy living? That's a little different, isn't it? It's a little different than saying, well, I know that she, if I go over to her house, I don't even, you know, I I know that I'm not going to bring a bottle of wine. I'm not going to drink wine around her. That's, That's not what is being taught here. What's being taught here is this attitude of service that goes beyond just restriction, but actually, how can I use my freedom to influence and inspire this person to holiness, to loving the Lord? We have to ask that in our relationships. We have to ask, what motivates us? Am I motivated by serving others or being served? What's the legacy that my behavior towards my spouse 
or towards my children or my friends or my coworkers is producing? What is the harvest? Am I closer to others than I've ever been? Is there a sweeter, more tender love for others in me than a year ago? Or am I crasser? Am I coarser? Am I more abrasive? Am I more bitter? Am I more grumpy? Is there more unity and peace? Is my relationship, are my relationships marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Would others say that I think more about them than about myself? If you were to ask your spouse or your children or your employer or your church family, what three words best describe you? Would servant be one of them? Would it make the top ten? Or do you actually have less tenderness, less unity, less love? Are you struggling with self-centeredness, pride, lust, other struggles of the flesh? The crisis in our relationships is not a crisis of loving others. It is a crisis of a lack of love for God because I love myself too much. And that's one final aspect of freedom, perhaps not brought out specifically in Acts 15, but certainly in the rest of the scriptures. When God sets you free by saving you by grace through the perfect righteousness of Christ, he frees you from yourself. He frees you from yourself. And that is true freedom, friends, when you are actually freed to love others as you ought to love them because God has fixed your relationship with him first. He has promised you an inheritance. He has laid before you everything that you need so you do not have to fight for it. You don't have to wrestle for it. You've got a new definition of success. You've inherited the world. What else do you need? You've been freed from yourself and freed to love and serve others. To start living for the king. And friends, that, as we've seen, is the only way that you will have peace and true joy. The rest of it leads to devouring one another in relationships. It leads to your own destruction. So friends, I see Acts 15. This is a wonderful moment. The support of justification by faith alone, grace of God, the reminder that we are to be driven in our relationships by love for one another and the voluntary restriction of our freedoms. And that is why Paul and Barnabas returned back to Antioch full of confidence full of joy as we will see, and already beginning to plan the second missionary journey. Let's pray. Father, you are the great and gracious God. Thank you for loving us through Jesus, for applying his righteousness to us, so that even though we are sinners, yet through mercy... We have been freed from having to fulfill the law, but also freed from ourselves, 
freed to love and serve others. So many glorious things, all to your glory. I pray that we would leave today in the confidence of what you've done for us, the willingness to measure our relationships by a desire for edifying others, for loving others, serving others, inspiring them to be holier, more joyful. Lord, help us to do that because of our great love for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.